If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Are the laws of nature nothing more than habits that natural systems have learned to repeat over time? While that might sound quite unbelievable, in this episode, Rupert Sheldrake will be making that argument. Rupert Sheldrake, the eminent biologist and author of several best-selling books, including The Science Delusion and Ways to Go Beyond, will be walking us through his theory of morphic resonance and the natural memory that it suggests. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now it's time to welcome Rupert Sheldrake on Philosophy for Our Times. I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I'm talking about nature's memory. And what I'm going to suggest is that there's a memory inherent in nature. In its most general sense, what I'm suggesting is that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. Every species of animal and plant has a kind of collective memory. Every individual draws upon it as they develop. It's a memory of form, and it's also a memory of instinct in the case of animals. Um, so every individual draws on this collective memory and in turn contributes to it. In the human realm, this is very like what the psychologist Jung called the collective unconscious, which he thought of as a kind of collective memory. And perhaps the most radical aspect of this hypothesis is that our own memories are not stored inside our brains as material traces, but rather depend on a kind of resonance with ourselves in the past. We've all been brought up on the idea that our memories are inside our brains. Everything we remember is stored somewhere inside our head. Uh, but as, as I shall show, uh, this theory, simple though it sounds, has turned out to be very hard to prove scientifically, if not impossible. And I think it's simply not the way that memory works, even though most people assume it must be. Well, why should we consider such a radical hypothesis? I think that we need to consider it whether we like it or not, because science is now in a kind of state of long-term crisis. In the 17th century, when modern science first got going, the founding fathers of modern science, like Galileo, Kepler, uh, Newton, uh, Descartes, all thought that 
nature was governed by fixed mathematical laws, and those laws were ideas in the mind of a mathematical God. They were eternal because God was eternal. A lot of scientists are now atheists and don't believe in a mathematical God upholding and sustaining the eternal laws of nature, which are beyond and outside the natural realm. However, the idea of eternal laws of nature has persisted as a habit of thought within science, and many scientists take it for granted. They don't believe in eternal laws because they've thought about this proposition, but usually because they haven't thought about it. Everything went on fine until 1966. Uh, in the 19th century, scientists thought the whole universe was eternal, made up of eternal matter and energy governed by eternal laws, and that sort of made sense. In the 19th century, however, in biology, the theory of evolution came along and said that um, things didn't just go on repeating indefinitely. Uh, life itself had evolved. But the cosmologists said that the universe hadn't evolved. It was eternal, but it was running out of steam. If anything, it was devolving towards a heat death. However, in 1966, as a result of the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation, the Big Bang theory of cosmology became orthodox. And that gives us a radically evolutionary view of the universe. It started very, very small, less than the size of a head of a pin, very hot, um, millions of degrees centigrade, and it's been expanding and cooling down ever since, and it's still expanding and cooling. So what about the eternal laws? Were they all there at the very moment of the Big Bang? And if so, why were they as they are? And where did all the matter and energy come from? As my friend Terence McKenna used to say, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe from nothing in a single instant, together with all the laws of nature that govern it. And these laws of nature, when you think about it, are not really things. You can't meet a law of nature, see one. You can't turn a, a telescope onto the sky and actually see a law of nature. They're invisible. They're believed to be present at all times and in all places, and yet uh, not to be directly detectable. They're very mysterious. They're not physical. They govern the physical world, but they're not physical. And the very idea of a law of nature is intensely anthropocentric. Only humans have laws. In fact, only civilized humans have laws. What I'm suggesting is that they're more like habits. And this idea of the laws being more like habits was first put forward 40 years ago in my book, A New Science of Life. My own hypothesis is that this works through a process I call morphic resonance. Morphic is from the Greek word morphe, meaning form. It's about resonance to do with shape, pattern, or organization. Uh, and resonance is to do with the vibratory nature of everything. Everything in nature, electrons, atoms, crystals, organisms, planets, everything has a rhythmic quality to it. It's, it's vibratory. The whole universe is vibratory. And what I'm suggesting is that vibratory patterns resonate across time and space with subsequent similar patterns, giving a kind of cumulative memory. So every young 
uh, giraffe embryo is resonating with previous giraffe embryos which are helping to shape its form through a habit of form. And when it's born, uh, it resonates with previous giraffes as, as they behave in their environment and has giraffe instincts by morphic resonance. I'll come back later to how this relates to genes and genetic inheritance. Well, this theory is a testable scientific hypothesis. Um, and it has been tested, and some of the tests, or most of them, have supported it, but it's still very controversial, as you can probably imagine. For example, if you make a new chemical compound that's never existed before, and you crystallize it, there won't have been any crystals of that compound before in the whole universe. So there won't be a pre-existing habit. You have to wait for a new crystal form to come into being, a new lattice structure. But the next time you make that crystal somewhere else in the world, the first crystals will influence it by morphic resonance. The third time you make it, the first and the second crystals will influence it, and so on. There'll be a cumulative buildup of influence. Uh, the habit will become stronger, and the crystals will form more easily. In fact, it's well known that as time goes on, crystals form more easily. Chemists don't think of this in terms of morphic resonance. They usually explain it in terms of anecdotes about fragments of previous crystals being carried from lab to lab on the beards or clothing of migrant scientists, or they assume that fragments of previous crystals have been wafted around the world in the atmosphere as dust particles. They don't dispute the actual fact of the um, things getting easier to crystallize. What I'm suggesting is that even if migrant chemists are excluded and dust particles filtered from the air, things should still get easier to crystallize. I discuss in my book, A New Science of Life, evidence from crystal melting points. The theory also predicts that as the crystals get more stable, it will be harder to break them up. In other words, you'll need a higher temperature and their melting points will increase. And there's evidence that for new chemical compounds, their melting points do indeed increase, and not by fractions of degree, but in some cases, 20 or 30 degrees centigrade. These are big effects. This hypothesis also predicts that if you train rats to learn a new trick in one place, say London, then rats in New York and Sydney, Australia, and in Peking will learn the same trick quicker just because the rats have learned it here in London. And again, there's evidence that this rather surprising effect actually happens. In the human realm, it should be getting easier for people to learn new skills, like playing video games, skateboarding, uh, windsurfing, etc., just because so many people have learned them. Indeed, they do seem to be getting easier to learn, but of course, many other factors affect this, and there have to be special rigorous tests to tease apart morphic resonance from these other phenomena. I discuss some of them in my book. Well, how does morphic resonance happen if it happens? Um, there are a variety of possible explanations. My favorite one really is in terms of the physicist David Bohm's interpretation of quantum theory. David Bohm was very interested in morphic resonance and he thought it worked through what he called the implicate order, a multidimensional order of things which unfolds into the world we actually observe, the explicate order. Now, if you're interested in the mathematical details of the implicate order and of what David Bohm called the quantum potential wave, you'll have to look at his own writings and books. 
uh, but their technical and multidimensional maths is not my own strong point. Others think that morphic resonance may work through some of the extra dimensions in superstring theory, which has 10 dimensions, or M theory, which have 11 dimensions. And these are the two leading theories in contemporary theoretical physics. Well, I'm not going to discuss the way in which they work. I'm just going to say the hypothesis is that there is this connection across space and time, which enables uh, habits to build up and memories to be transferred. That's the hypothesis. There are possible explanations in terms of physics. There's evidence that suggests this might really be true. Well, this has many implications for all sorts of things in nature, and one of them is in biological inheritance. We've all been brought up on the idea that inheritance equals genetics. Often people use the word hereditary and genetic as if they're synonyms. And the importance of genetics has been widely popularized over the last 40 or 50 years. One of the principal proponents of this popularization has been Richard Dawkins, whose book The Selfish Gene uh, did a great deal to uh, convince a lot of people that genes are at the root of all evolution and all inheritance. However, genes have a much more limited role than this vision of Dawkins and other uh, neo-Darwinian evolutionary theorists suggests. We know what genes do. They code for the sequence of amino acids in proteins. They enable organisms, including ourselves, to make the right proteins, uh, the, the right primary structure, the string of amino acids that um, make up the, what's called the primary structure of the protein, which then folds up into complex three-dimensional form. Genes don't code for shape of faces, you know, structure of feathers, the nature of eyes, the fight-or-flight instinct in animals in response to danger, and so on. Um, they code for proteins, not for instincts or forms. And most scientists simply assume that if you've got the right proteins, then the right forms will just come about somehow automatically. It's a bit like saying, if you deliver the right building materials to a building site, the house will erect itself. You need more than just hand-waving and hope to explain biological form. And people who actually study this form don't think it's just a matter of genes and proteins. There are all sorts of other factors involved in shaping organisms, including uh, morphogenetic fields. In genes, in fact, don't explain all inheritance. Uh, in the 1980s, a lot of people thought they would do, and that's why billions of dollars were spent on the Human Genome Project. When the genome was finally sequenced in 2000 with the fuller more detailed sequence published in 2001, the results were anticlimactic. People thought, or they said in publicity material for the Genome Project, that this would open the book of life, enable us to read human nature in molecular detail. In fact, it turned out we only have about 20,000 genes. Rice has about 45,000. People were expecting about 100,000 genes, but far fewer of them were expected and they explain a great deal less of inheritance than people thought. Investors invested billions in biotech companies thinking that genetic patents would lead to enormous breakthroughs. On the whole, they haven't. And the ability of sequencing genes to predict 
conditions like proneness to breast cancer or schizophrenia is extremely limited. I mean, it may explain a few percent of the inheritance, less than 10%, uh, but most of it is not explained in terms of genes. This has caused a crisis in the heart of biology, which is called the missing heritability problem, because it turns out that most inheritance can't be explained in terms of genes, contrary to the confident predictions in the 20th century. Partly, uh, this missing heritability can be explained in terms of epigenetic inheritance, inheritance over and above the genes. This used to be called the inheritance of acquired characteristics. It was tremendously heretical in 20th century science, but after being rebranded epigenetic inheritance, it's become one of the, one of the hottest areas of research in biology. So quite a lot of inheritance uh, seems to depend on epigenetics. Um, but I think that most of it depends on morphic resonance. It depends on a resonance with our ancestors, with all those who've gone before, especially those who are most similar to us. Um, and much of our form and instincts and mannerisms and behavior and characteristics are inherited by morphic resonance. And I think the same is true of plants and animals as well. Um, so morphic resonance is a key part of inheritance. Genes are part of it. Epigenetics is part of it. Uh, but morphic resonance is also a major part of it. And this helps to explain one of the great problems in modern biology, which is why there's such a discrepancy between the missing heritability problem and inheritance studies based on identical twins. For a long time, people have thought that the best way to disentangle the influence of genetics and environment or nature and nurture was through studying identical twins who'd been separated soon after birth and adopted by different families. There have now been many studies of this kind, and there are extraordinary similarities between these twins, um, going way beyond what you'd expect on the basis of standard biology. Uh, some, in some cases, they call their children by the same names, they have similar hobbies, paint benches in their garden the same color. No one had expected that kind of thing to be coded in genes, even the most extreme Dawkinsites. Um, but the fact is, the twins are very similar, which led to people thinking, well, genes do even more than we thought they did. It means their genes are even more uh, determinative of organisms' characteristics. We're shaped more by our genes than even people in the 20th century fantasized or imagined. Well, there's a great discrepancy between these findings from twins and the missing heritability problem. And I think the reason is that instead of it just being a simple choice between nature and nurture, genes and environment, the third factor which has been left out of this discussion is morphic resonance. Identical twins, by definition, are very similar to each other, and they resonate with each other by morphic resonance. If one takes up a new habit, uh, a new uh, paints their house one color, the other might decide to do the same by resonance, not because they've got genes that tell them to do it. And I think a lot of the identical twin studies are best interpreted in terms of evidence for morphic resonance. Now, if you ask the question, who in the past was most similar to me? The answer is me. We're most similar to ourselves. We're more similar to ourselves in the past than to anybody else. And that's why 
the most specific resonance working on us from the past is from our own past. We resonate with ourselves in the past across time and space. And that, I think, is why our form remains more or less constant, even though there's a continual turnover of proteins and cells within our bodies. And it's why I think we have our own memories. We resonate with other people too, but less specifically. So there's a collective memory. There's also a specific individual memory. And the difference between the two is a difference of degree, not of kind. Well, you might think this sounds absolutely ridiculous. Of course, everyone knows memories are stored in brains. And indeed, most scientists have assumed that for well over 100 years. And they've spent billions of dollars and vast amounts of time looking for these supposed memory traces or engrams, as they're sometimes called, physical traces, modified synapses, nerve endings, or special proteins, or even modified nucleic acids, RNA or DNA, inside nerve cells, which are supposed to store these memories. They've so far failed to find them over and over again. It's turned out that these traces have proved elusive. For example, in the 1970s, some scientists trained Dale Chicks to imprint on a particular moving object, and they found that a particular region of their brain became active. And they said, well, there you are. These are the memory traces. But if they left the tricks for a day and then cut out that region of the brain, they could still remember what they'd learned. So the supposed memory traces turned out not to be uh, there where they thought they'd identified them. And so then they said, oh, well, they must be spread all over the rest of the brain holographically, so you can't actually pin them down. There have been all sorts of attempts to explain memory. There have been more recent attempts to detect engrams using very sophisticated techniques called optogenetic techniques, where green fluorescent proteins can be activated by laser light, and you can actually study at the cellular level what's happening when mice learn a new trick. And scientists have shown that certain cells get labeled using their technique, and if they activate those cells, the memory can be retrieved. And they say, well, there you are, that's the memory trace. The trouble is, in these experiments, what they've done is created what they're actually looking for. They've created an artificial memory trace, uh, which doesn't prove that's how uh, memories normally work. And other studies have shown that the cells activated when a memory is being laid down, some of them are reactivated when the memory is remembered, but only about 10% of them, lots of other cells get involved. The attempt to find memory traces has just got more and more complicated. It's got, they've become more and more elusive. And the one thing that most neuroscientists don't consider is the possibility that memories are not stored in the brain at all. I think the quest for memory traces is a bit like trying to find traces of what you watched on TV last night inside your television set by analysing the wires and transistors. There won't be any traces of the programs you watched last night. That's not how TV works. It's how video recorders work, but it's not how TV works. TV works by tuning into invisible transmissions that are coming across time, by space, by a resonance process. And I'm suggesting morphic resonance is somewhat similar, except the resonance is across time as well as space. This, of course, has many implications. Many materialists are also atheists, and one of the arguments they like is that memories are stored in the brain, the brain decays at death, therefore all memories are wiped out at death. It all must go blank. On the other hand, all religions believe that something survives the death of the body. 
either there's an ongoing psychic life in what Roman Catholics would call purgatory, an ongoing continued development, or there's a transfer of memories to another person who, who's born later, as in reincarnation or rebirth. Or people survive as ancestors who can interact with spirit mediums or shamans uh, and uh, influence people who are still alive. There are varieties of theories of survival, but they all presuppose the survival of memory. If there was no memory, you wouldn't remember who you were when you were in an afterlife or who your relatives were. If, uh, and if there was a transfer from one life to another through rebirth or reincarnation, unless memories were transferred, there'd be, the whole theory would break down. There'd be no point to it. Um, it all depends on some kind of memory, surviving the death of the brain. Well, if memory depends on morphic resonance, then it doesn't get eliminated by the death of the brain. The ability to tune into it may not survive. It doesn't prove there's survival, but it leaves the question open, whereas the materialist theory leaves the question closed. Then morphic resonance has many implications for religious rituals. In rituals, people reenact the same pattern of events in the same way, the same language, often using ritual languages which are no longer spoken, but are considered to be important because it has to be the same the way it's done before. Like the Brahminic rituals in India are done in Sanskrit, which is not a living language. And it's believed they have to be done that way because it has to connect with all those who've done the ritual before. People taking part in rituals think they're connecting across space and time with past generations who've done that ritual right back to the first time it happened. And we'll also link to future generations doing the same ritual in the future. Well, from a standard atheist point of view, this is just typical religious mumbo-jumbo. But from the point of view of morphic resonance, it makes very good sense because through doing rituals as similarly as possible, there will indeed be a kind of resonance with those who've done them before or with those who do them afterwards. So morphic resonance uh, sheds a new light on uh, rituals, as indeed on many other um, phenomena. It also leads to a completely different view of the evolution of the universe. Those who believe in fixed laws of nature, which is most scientists and most cosmologists, have the problem of trying to explain why those laws were as they are at the beginning of the universe, at the time of the Big Bang. Why were the laws the laws of our universe rather than the laws of another possible universe? Um, and these laws seem to be just right for life to emerge on Earth. And so do the physical constants, like the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the charge on the electron, and so on. One set of uh, philosophers say, well, they must have been fine-tuned by an intelligent designer, a kind of god, as a kind of engineering god who fine-tunes the constants and laws of nature at the beginning of the universe, presses the start button, and then the universe goes on automatically thereafter. This is a form of a view of God called deism, the idea of a remote creator God who then lets the whole universe proceed automatically. It's not a view of God that most atheists want, of course, nor is it a view of God that most Christians or other religious believers have, because they don't think of God as a remote presser of a start button, but as a, a conscious presence who can be contacted here and now. So, uh, in order to avoid this deistic engineering God, 
the usual way that cosmologists and atheists deal with the problem is to say, well, there must be billions, trillions of other universes. It's called the multiverse, that uh, all these universes actually exist. Um, but we can only know the one that's absolutely right for us. We happen to be in the only universe that works, works for us. All the others actually exist. Well, there's not a shred of evidence for all these other universes. And for me, it's a puzzling thing that extreme materialists of the kind of Richard Dawkins type are usually incredibly dismissive of any phenomena that don't fit their view that the mind is nothing but the brain. They dismiss, for example, evidence for telepathy. There's actually quite a lot of evidence for telepathy. Uh, on the grounds telepathy is impossible. Yet they're perfectly happy to admit there are trillions of unobserved universes without any evidence whatsoever. And they do so because they think that by multiplying universes, which is the ultimate violation of Occam's razor, the principle that you shouldn't multiply entities unnecessarily. Uh, they think that by multiplying universes, they can get rid of God. Uh, you don't need a creator God. But as some theologians have pointed out, an infinite God could be the God of an infinite number of universes. So they don't even get rid of God. They simply proliferate universes in a completely untestable way, which personally... I think is uh, nothing more than metaphysical speculation. I don't think it's science at all. I think science should be testable. Uh, and that's the traditional criterion of what is science. Now, the idea of morphic resonance is testable. It's unfamiliar to most people in the West because ever since Plato in ancient Greece, Western philosophy has been based on the idea that it's governed by eternal organizing principles, either beyond nature as Plato's ideas or forms were, or as the Pythagorean school thought of mathematics as beyond nature and yet governing all of nature. Where it was, so, or, or within nature, Aristotle, Plato's student, thought that they, they were fixed forms, but they were imminent in nature, not transcendent beyond nature, but they were still fixed. It was a radically non-evolutionary view. However, in Eastern philosophy, in Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, They've always had the idea that there's a kind of memory in nature. Sometimes uh, the principle is referred to as karma. Karma, the idea of actions effect, have effects that stretch over lives, over generations. They're not just immediate mechanical cause-effect things. So there's the idea of an inherent memory in nature is perfectly acceptable. Indeed, standard in Eastern philosophy is just extremely unusual in the West. But actually, I think as we move into a more radic this more radically evolutionary view of nature, the idea of the laws of nature is more like habits. Nature having a memory makes a much better sense of the actual facts of cosmology, of physics, of chemistry, of biology, of inheritance, of memory, of psychology, of uh, religious practices, of rituals, and so on. And I think it opens up a whole new way of thinking about the universe, which is testable um, and scientific, although controversial. And so that, in essence, is the idea I wanted to present to you today. And I'm aware, if you haven't heard of it before, that it will be very shocking. And I'm also aware that if you have heard of it uh, and uh, you belong to a strictly materialist school of thought, you probably won't like it. But only time will tell. This is testable 
there haven't been enough tests so far to be clear whether it's true or not. I myself think it probably is, but time will tell. And possibly in 10 or 20 years time, it will be much clearer as to whether this is the way things really work or not. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.